We believe to ride and run is freedom and empowerment. We believe riding and running solves problems and makes people happy. We even believe that if more people were physically active, the world would be a better place. We believe in physical activity because it is our passion. This is the Big Peach Ride and Run Podcast with your host, Mike Cosentino. From the capital of the South, this is the Big Peach Ride and Run Podcast. My name is Mike Cosentino. Good evening, everyone. For those of you who are joining us on Facebook Live, welcome. We have a special treat for you, for sure. For those of you who are picking this up as we repackage it into a podcast, this is going to be good fun for you. Hopefully, while you are out doing something you enjoy tonight, our special guest, he is back, a return guest of ours, and I have been looking forward to this for quite Quite some time. David Reichlin, my goodness, welcome back. Last time we spoke quite a couple of years ago now, believe it or not, and a change of venue for you. So this is a little bit overdue, but thanks for making some time for us. Oh, well, thanks so much for having me back on. It's a pleasure. Well, it's going to be fun to talk about some of the things we talked about previously and get updates and, of course, some new things. For those of you who did not catch the name David Reichlin, go to episode number 48, Big Peach run ATL podcast before we repackage this broadcast and you'll get a sense of what he is all about. For those of you getting to know him for the first time right now, professor of biological sciences and anthropology at the University of Southern California. David, I mentioned this before D2 fired up the mic. Last time we spoke, you were at the University of Arizona and you have continued your good work, but knowing that that's been a couple of years, what has been going on with you Personally, obviously, we were pre-pandemic, and now here we are in 2022. What's been going on with you personally? Well, the move has been the sort of big, big kind of life change for sure. Uh, so, yeah, the last couple of years has been kind of taken up by a uh, change of venue. I, I'm, I grew up in Southern California. Okay. Um, I grew up in, in the Los Angeles area, so it's sort of like a homecoming. Uh, that's actually where I started running. I'd ran cross country in high school in LA. So it's kind of nice to be back in, in, in those environments. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, just kind of getting my lab up and running out there. The pandemic, um, for people who do work with human subjects has been challenging. And so a lot of the work that I've done over the last couple of years had had to kind of shift to, um, epidemiology and work that didn't require bringing people into the lab for safety reasons. Mm. Uh, but yeah, it's been, it's been an amazing move. And so I'm just really excited about all the big changes that we've, we've undergone. Well, that's awesome. And a perfect setup really, because I was going to ask you what it's like to do some of the research that you're known for, given what has been, you know, maybe considered appropriate. So we may dive back into that for the time being, let everybody know a little bit of background and, and where we first hooked up with David. He has spent the better part of his career looking at the evolutionary context in terms of how we improve kind of our overall health, maybe our well-being cognitively, neurologically, musculoskeletally. I don't think that's the right way to pronounce that. The easier word for me to say, though, given that we talk about it all the time, cardiovascularly. And David, also with an emphasis, it seems like continuing to be on some of the later stages in life and comparing certain groups and even those live subjects that you talked about in different communities. So let's let's dive right right into this. If you think about the work that you've done now for a considerable period of time, I think everybody who would say, my goodness, if we look back and we use evolution as a foundation for this conversation, 
were we better off before or are we better off now? And how would you answer that? That's a great question. Um, you know, uh, the modern world that we're living in, especially living in, in an industrialized society with access to the kinds of that many of us have access to an amazing healthcare system, although disparities exist that need to be dealt with. Um, is is a world that we would not want to, you know, we would not want to go back in time and and give up all of the sort of modern advances that help mm. us not only live a long time, but but you know can help us live healthy a long time. That said, there are aspects of our evolutionary history that if we were able to better incorporate that um, the behaviors that we evolved in, in, in doing for for a couple million years, um, we'd probably be better off today. But, you know, I think it's a really cool question to ask because there's such an, you know, in the, kind of in the popular world, talk about the paleo lifestyle and paleo diets and paleo exercise. And, and um, you know, I just think I, I wouldn't want to give up the world we have. It's, there's amazing things that we have access to. Um, but my focus is in research is on how an evolutionary context, understanding physical activity and exercise can help us today. And I think there are things we can take from our evolutionary history that can help us today in great ways. Well, and, and one of the words that pops up regularly, perhaps that's a step, if not backwards, at least in a place where it would give us pause that shows up time and time again in your papers and the things that you've published is sedentary, where mm -hmm. that sedentary lifestyle is just more prominent seemingly than in a lot of those people groups you have studied and a lot of the research you have completed. What is it specifically for a sedentary lifestyle that you found that would further encourage people perhaps that that is not the right way perhaps to give yourself the best shot at well-being and perhaps a very high quality of existence? For sure. So I think the one of the things that we can sort of take from our understanding of human evolution is that we, we evolved in a context of high levels of physical activity, but we also evolved in a sense to be lazy, right? Mm. I mean, we, we, we evolved in a sense to when we needed to be active, we were active, but in other times when you, when you weren't, when it wasn't required, you wanted to conserve energy. You wanted to rest. You wanted to sit. What we've done today is, taken all of the need to be physically active out of the equation of life, right? Mm -hmm. You can drive yourself to a grocery store. You can, you know, you can push a cart so you don't even have to carry anything anymore. Um, and, and then you can drive home. And, and so to get food doesn't require much activity at all. And so what overtakes us is this desire to be lazy and to conserve energy. On top of that, we've created these amazingly comfortable ways to be lazy. We built couches. We, we're sitting in chairs. You know, we, we are so comfortable um, that it's very hard to maintain a lot of activity throughout the day. You have to make a conscious effort to do it because it's not required of you. And so I think, um, I think part of what we understand now is that um, knowledge of the importance of physical activity can help people sort of get started in, in an active lifestyle, but it's really hard to overcome that drive to be, to sit, right? It's really comfortable to sit. <laughs> and so, yeah. and there's a reason for that. Um, and you know, the work that we've done with hunter gatherers where we're kind of looking at what's, what makes up this lifestyle 
you know, what kind of activity level is present in this, in this hunting and gathering lifestyle? What we find is that they're very active. They get way more physical activity than most humans do today. Um, but they also are resting and sitting for nine, 10 hours a day, which is pretty similar to what we do. Mm. Um, and so, you know, rest is a part of the human experience. It is a part of, of what makes us human. It's just a question of um, we don't have to be physically active anymore in many ways. And so we don't do it. Wow. So I'm going to, I'm going to let everyone hear from you, the type of field study that, that you do. If you are now part of this Facebook live, you have a question or a comment for David, feel free to send that to us podcast at bigpeachrunningco.com. Of course, if you're listening to us on the podcast, don't do that. Just continue to listen in. David, for those who have not yet been to it, I'm super impressed with this website. Everybody write this down, reichlandlab.com. That's R-A-I-C-H-L-E-N-L-A-B. So much good information there, including where you have done a lot of research in the field. Would you mind kind of giving everybody an overview of some of that work that you've done outside of the laboratory or outside of those university teaching settings that you've been part of? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, as part of our work, um, I've been really fortunate to work with great colleagues, um, mainly uh, a professor at UCLA named Brian Wood and a professor at Duke University named Herman Ponser. Mm. And we've gone out to um, Tanzania um, for several field seasons to work with a group of hunter-gatherers called the Hadza. Um, the Hadza are really the last big game hunter-gatherers living in East Africa. Uh, many of them um, engage in a great deal of hunting and gathering to get the majority of their food. Although as a whole, the group is undergoing transitions to, away from a full-time hunting and gathering lifestyle. And that's happening um, right now <laughs> as we speak. Um, but uh, what they, what, I mean, they're just an amazing group of people. And one of the things that uh, by them kind of allowing us to come in and spend time with them and, and, and understand their life, they give us a window into what life is like as a hunter-gatherer, right? And that is a lifestyle that humans have practiced uh, for the last two million years under various incarnations. Um, of course, the Hadza are, you know, living in, in today's world and they make use of all sorts of um, uh, things that are available to all humans today. Um, but they provide us this window into a lifestyle that's also uh, shared with a lot of um, ancient uh, 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 lifestyle elements. And so they give us an idea of what, for example, physical activity might have been like uh, two million years ago. What levels are required of this lifestyle? What, what, how, does, how does physical activity interact with health in these kinds of hunting and gathering contexts. And this helps us understand um, a little bit more of what a hunting and gathering lifestyle might have done to the evolution of human physiology. And so when we kind of work with this group and we combine our understanding of activity and physiology and health in the Hadza with lab studies, we can start to piece together better what, what kinds of activities humans are best adapted to. 
Very cool. And, and obviously, you know, here in a metropolitan area like Atlanta or in Southern California, the opportunity to be a hunter-gatherer, that's pretty limited, perhaps would be considered all-out insane if we decided that's the existence we're going to choose for ourselves. But now that you've been in those communities where it's still standard practice, even if it is evolving to some degree, you've also done work where you are pulling very specific metrics, off of those individuals and off of those who are part of those communities. And it seems like you're then applying what you've learned through, gosh, I think last time we spoke, David, you were maybe even using Garmin watches and other technology we're familiar with to help improve our half marathon times to get a sense of steps and calories and amount of activity per day. And what are you finding from a results perspective? If you look at you know, amount of minutes inactivity or quality of sleep or any other type of metric that now is more commonplace, but we're not at all doing the way a community like the Hadza would be. Right. Yes. So good question. And I think, I mean, in some ways it's startling how much activity uh, people get on a daily basis on average. Um, so, you know, our work with the Hadza, um, well, let's put it into a couple different popular metrics. One is steps per day, right? That's something a lot of people track in public health. That's something a lot of people in the general public like to track about themselves. Um, and, you know, there's sort of this squishy number of 10,000 steps a day that it has its own sort of history of why that's been chosen as a, as a marker for what people should be getting, whether you buy it or not. The Hadza far exceed that. So they get on average about 18,000 steps per day. Um, We looked at what's called time spent in moderate to vigorous physical activity, uh, which is just a fancy way of saying, you know, physical activity that's at a moderate to higher intensity based on your heart rate. It's what we would consider health enhancing physical activity. So for most people, that's going to you're going to start entering that at a very brisk walk. Certainly all of running is taking place in a, uh, all jogging and running is going to take place at moderate to vigorous physical activity. You know, the U.S. Department of Public Health uh, suggests we get about 150 minutes per week of that activity. The Hadza get over 150 minutes per day of that activity in general. And so we're, we're really talking about levels of activity that are far beyond what, what we engage in, even if we're surpassing guidelines for health and, and well-being. So if we look at, let's just use terms that unfortunately are are all too common, at least here in a westernized world, heart disease, Mm -hmm. cardiovascular concerns, obesity epidemic. What are those terms more likely to mean in that culture or in some of the subjects you're studying, or do they have any meaning at all? I mean, it's pretty non-existent. Um, and, you know, we've done some work on this, uh, looking at biomarkers of cardiovascular disease, like blood biomarkers, cholesterol, um, triglycerides. We've looked at obesity. We've looked at blood pressure. And there's just very little evidence of any kind of risk of cardiovascular disease in the Hadza. Um, what we don't have from our work is good um, data on the development of disease and mortality and uh, causes of mortality. There are other uh, researchers who've done amazing work. One of the best sort of uh, uh, groups that's been studied is a group of people called the Chimane, 
um, who live in South America, and they are forager horticulturalists, so a little bit different than the Hadza. They live in forests, but, uh, but they've been uh, working with a group of researchers who've been looking at their health. And they have found um, through much more sophisticated um, techniques that there is almost no heart disease in this group. They've been looking at several thousand individuals. They just published a paper uh, just a few weeks ago showing almost no incidence of Alzheimer's disease in, in these populations. And so, you know, I mean, some of the things that we think of as inevitable parts of aging in, in the US, for example, like hypertension, it's inevitable that as you get older, you're going to get high blood pressure. That's actually not true. That's not existent in some of these other populations that live in a very different way. I mean, one of the things, you know, we don't study as specifically as diet. So, and you can't, you can't only talk about physical activity. You know, there's physical activity, there's diet, there's social interactions. There's, there's lots of behaviors that go into keeping us healthy as we age all of those seem to be present in these communities to a higher degree than in general in the U.S. I'm going to pull at a, a couple of works that I've seen that made me think of you. One that actually, I believe, referenced you, but as I do so, whether you're familiar with them or not, I'd be more interested in, in your perspective on the premise based on what you've seen, based on not just your studies, but quite frankly, the opinions you now have based on two decades of work that you've been doing. The first is genius foods and, and a phrase that a lot of people have heard that has been made somewhat more popular through a book that it goes very specific with certain foods that apparently assist our cognitive health, or at least are less likely to erode what is going on in our brains. And I think for us, it's easy to say, okay, well, if you're doing 18,000 steps a day versus doing, you know, eight, you're probably better off from a cardiovascular standpoint. But you've spent a lot of time looking at cognition and looking at what is going on above our shoulders. What are you finding as it relates to diet in those communities you've studied and brain health? Is there a such thing as a genius food or maybe even a more sensible way to eat and consume the calories that we currently get? That's a really good question. We, I mean, we have not looked specifically at diet and health. There, 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 there is some work on diet in the Hadza showing, sort of trying to kind of tease out how much meat versus um, tubers and, and high okay. fiber foods. Fiber consumption is extremely high in, in the Hadza and in a lot of other uh, groups living these subsistence type lifestyles. Um, I think, you know, the relationship between diet and cognition and brain health is is very just like any behavior and say Alzheimer's disease is really hard to figure out because it's you can't really run randomized controlled trials. And so you're left with observational epidemiology with diet. That's really difficult because most of the work is done with dietary recall, which has its a lot of issues with it. Right. And so, um, you know, we're left with, with cardiovascular disease, you can look at biomarkers a little better, right? So you can do controlled trials where you have people change their diet and you can see how things are changing in terms of their blood biomarkers. Harder to do with something like Alzheimer's disease. Um, so there are there is some work that suggests that the mind mind diet, which is sort of an extension of the, of the DASH diet, I believe, um, has a role 
to play perhaps in reducing risk of Alzheimer's disease or, or dementia. So there clearly are dietary inputs, but how carefully done those studies are, it's, it's, it's tough to sort of draw firm conclusions. Okay. Even though you just said that, I've got, I've got a question here. I'm going to try to do it at least some justice, and it, it may be a little bit unfair to you and me doing so, but it asks, can he unpack the findings around Alzheimer's specifically a little bit more so? So is there some evidence similar to where you referenced heart disease that Alzheimer's is less prevalent in those communities you've studied than what it is perhaps in the communities we currently live? Great. It's a great question. And so uh, we're currently sort of working on um, that question with the Hadza, trying to sort of figure out um, how it's, it's, it's complicated to diagnose Alzheimer's disease in a population like this or, or any kind of dementia, because the kinds of scales, the, the, the techniques that you have available to you are, are, are different than you have here. Uh, as I said, though, the, I think the best study to point to just came out a couple of weeks ago in this group, the Chimane, which are uh, a subsistence living forager horticulturalist group in South America. And they found almost no incidence of Alzheimer's disease. And this was really well done. This was where they, they took uh, head CT scans. So they had imaging of the brain. They had neurologists in the U.S. that were d doing the diagnosing based on really well-defined criteria. So it was just a really wonderfully done study. And basically they did not find any evidence of Alzheimer's disease to any extent down in this group. So again, I think um, a, lot of the, a lot of the diseases that we experience and think of as really just an inevitable part, some large percentage of our populations can develop these diseases. It, it doesn't have to be that way. That's not the case everywhere in the world. Wow. I mean, that's just, I mean, that's almost show-stopping right there. If we did nothing else and we just went to the bed of music that wrapped us up for the evening <laughs> for everybody to kind of camp out on that thinking right there. So I'm going to actually, now I'm going to go from, and anybody else who has a question, again, podcast at bigpeachrunningcode.com. I'm going to be selfish for a second though here, David. I'm going to go through a few things that we occasionally see, if not research, at least somebody's opinion on. And maybe you can give us a, a, a little bit of a glimpse into what you see in these communities or your research. Caffeine or even coffee. You know, we hear about antioxidants in, in caffeine or coffee. We hear that, you know, perhaps it's good, perhaps it's not so good. Is there any real usage of caffeine or coffee in those societies you've studied? And is there anything that, that you would say, well, here might be something, if nothing else, is a little bit interesting? You know, in, in, the, in the Hadza, I don't know of any coffee or caffeine use that, that I'm aware of. Um, there, there is others. I mean, there, there's tobacco use and things like that, but, but I'm not aware of, and some alcohol consumption, things like that, but I'm not aware of caffeine use. Um, yeah. It's a good question. Well, and, I, yeah. well, and it's funny, you just said alcohol use. And again, this is me just unpacking this perhaps for me. Hopefully our listeners get something from it as well. But I was going to go to alcohol next. I tried to serve up the one that maybe was less likely to be a surprise in caffeine. But now I'm going to simply ask for those of us who like a craft beer on occasion, what do you see, if anything, relative to alcohol of any form in those studies that you've done, especially in the field? I mean, we haven't looked at the relationship between alcohol use and health. Um, 
I will say, uh, just I mean, it has nothing to do with my work, but there was a great study that just was uh, written up this morning. Uh, there was an article that came out um, that did try to, because again, one of the problems just sort of, this is like a mantra, right? A lot of this work is from observational epidemiology, the work that suggested that a little bit of alcohol, like a drink a day might actually be beneficial. Um, the work that came out today was use a new kind of technique that, that it takes epidemiology and makes it look more like a randomized control trial using genetics. So it looks like your genetic uh, predisposition for drinking alcohol and, hmm. and uses that as your alcohol consumption and sees to see whether it's related to disease outcomes and actually showed there's a dose response uh, relationship where it's likely that alcohol consumption is at any level is not actually very good for you. Um, that said, the differences in, you know, in low levels of alcohol consumption from that paper seem to be very small. And so enjoying, you know, alcohol every once in a while or, or, you know, on occasion doesn't seem to have any real effect, but anyway, that's for listeners to go check out from paper. Yep. I think the paper just came out yesterday. So hot off the presses, uh, but it's really cool work. You know, I think I, one of the things that I try to get across when, when, especially when we talk about behavior and health um, and these health outcomes that happen long down the road, right? Alzheimer's disease, mortality, you know, even, even risk of developing cardiovascular disease, it's virtually impossible to run well-controlled trials. And so everything, almost all of the things you're reading about come from observational studies. And so you have to read things smartly, right? Because mm. what's happening in all of these studies, including studies that I write, because I do observational epidemiology, I think it's, there can be very good work done. Uh, but there's always unmeasured aspects of life in people that you're studying that confound your analyses. And you can never control for them completely. And so we always have to couch our conclusions as best we can um, so that we don't send people off on the wrong foot. And so that's why, like, the alcohol work is a really good example that, you know, we have to be really careful about using a drink a day is heart healthy when it comes from pure epidemiology with unmeasured confounds. Because there are other things that maybe people do who have a drink a day but not five drinks a day and not zero drinks a day that are actually driving the heart health. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, that's not to be on a sofa, but I think, you know, when we talk about research, I think like understanding how people do these studies is really important for people when they're reading an article in the New York times or in the Atlanta journal constitution or wherever that's, that's talking about some of this research that, you know, maybe the, those newspaper articles don't go into the methods, but the methods are really critical because the conclusions are not always as strong as they get popularized. Well, I love the fact that you indicated that some of the work is just inherently observational. And certainly you've had the ability to do that both in the lab and in the field. And I know this is not a scientific term, but I'm going to throw it out here anyway, which is just going to be, you know, satisfying as a, as the age related processes or satisfactory aging, whatever it might be where aging and just some of the things that all of us perhaps somewhat fear, but also acknowledge that as we get older, there are things that are going to be or not going to be that were not the case last year, or certainly when we were younger, here's the thing that, and I mentioned before we started taping that, you know, you achieved your PhD same year, big peach running company was incepted 2004. One of the things I've seen a ton of information on, especially when it comes to personal 
development, even, you know, how to help organizations achieve what would be their optimal performance. That was not the case when I was in corporate America, whether it was because I wasn't paying attention to it or just wasn't as prominent has to do with sleep. And so I'm going to go to your observational behaviors because I could be super stereotypical in saying when I think about some of the pictures I've seen from your work, even though it's not people necessarily sleeping, when I think about some of the work I've done to get ready for this interview to look further into these communities with other information that's independent of your own research, there's nothing that gives me a snapshot of what their sleep cycles are like, but Mm. you've seen them firsthand. How would you observationally, I guess, respond to how much does sleep matter given your exposure to those hunter gatherers and what they choose as it relates not just to rest, but also to sleep? I mean, sleep is sleep matters quite a bit. We do know uh, Hadza, for example, get about seven hours ish a okay. night for, of sleep. Um, that's from measured uh, using uh, wearable devices. And there's a study going on right now that's kind of looking more carefully at larger numbers of individuals to really sort that out. Um, They tend to sleep with temperature changes. That seems to also be, you know, that kind of triggers wake up and and, uh, sleep time. Um, And, uh, you know, we have not yet looked at associations between variation in sleep and any other parameters in the Hadza, um, you know, just sleeping out there with them. I know that they wake up at night sometimes because I hear people wake up and put on the radio (laughs) or I hear people wake up and they're laughing or something. So, you know, um, uh, I, you know, it's not like everyone out there like falls to sleep at nine o'clock and wakes up at six o'clock and there's nothing going on in between. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, sleep is such a key aspect of health. We know that uh, sleep is associated with, again, I use the word associated, uh, not necessarily causal, but associated with risk of, of different diseases, including Alzheimer's disease and dementia. Um, and so I think it's it's incredibly important. Just like my personal life, I, I've always struggled with sleep um, and different types of sleep problems. And so I'm a big advocate of you know, getting the help you need to, to uh, conquer whatever sleep problems uh, you're going through. Well, and it's easy, again, stereotyping, perhaps being even totally incorrect. I love to backcountry camp, but I know mm. when I get back that I have not slept well. It's just one of those things I'm willing to forsake for the sake of the experience, that I'll take my traditional amount of sleep and that quality of sleep that I get in my own bed and just say, I'm going to set that aside for a long weekend. And that's all right. And then the, with these pictures I've seen, obviously for most of us, we don't have nearly the same number of individuals in the same proximity. You mentioned temperature changes, which I wrote down as a note. I also assume that sound levels based on what I would estimate versus what most of us experience each night are at a decibel that is at least higher. But then all of a sudden I'm like, wow, but they're still, at least on paper, putting statistics out there that would suggest they're so much healthier than what we are. And I didn't know if that was one of those things you just kind of get used to it, or if this validates based on what you've seen with the sleep cycles and the, the type of sleep they get, that guess what? Do whatever it takes, regardless of where you are, to take your sleep seriously and you would benefit. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's that there's no doubt about that. Um, I do think, you know, there, there is, there are things to learn about sleep in these societies that, 
you know, the, the kinds of sounds that you are exposed to, um, the kinds of temperature that you're exposed to. Certainly, you know, the group that we work with, they don't have cushioned areas to sleep. I mean, they're sleeping on a, on a blanket on the ground, uh, but they do seem to get what we would consider and define as, you know, appropriate good sleep. Um, I, do, I, I would not advocate necessarily trying to mimic the kinds of of uh, conditions that the HODs are sleeping in. It's just not feasible for most people. But I would say, you know, I mean, again, this isn't my area of research, but it's certainly my personal interest that there are plenty of resources for people who, you know, insomnia is something that people can really suffer with. There's resources mm. out there and there are um, uh, specially trained psychologists who do what's called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. That's a specific kind of therapy for um, for sleep disturbances and sleep problems that uh, is really just an amazing field that can actually really help people. It's been shown, those have been shown in randomized controlled trials, those results. So, you know, I definitely urge anybody listening right now who's got sleep problems, you don't have to suffer with it. There are ways to, uh, techniques that can help that are beyond just turn off your phone at night, right? The easy stuff that yeah. doesn't always work for everyone. There are some real techniques and people out there that can help you. Well, and I would imagine those types of distractions are not nearly as, as prevalent in some of the field studies that you've done. Yeah, although, the, you know, like the last time I was out there was really funny. I mean, there, there are cell phones. There's just last time I was okay. out there, there was not good cell phone reception. And so, you know, there's not really smartphones and stuff. But but there are, you know, I mean, there are distractions, but not like there's people aren't sitting there scrolling Instagram at, at midnight before they go to bed and getting themselves all riled up about something, you know, or <laughs> reading some politics on Twitter and getting upset about something. Right. So, um, so yeah, I mean, the, the, the kinds of distractions are very different. I actually find like, you know, like I said, I mean, I personally have had a lot of sleep problems in, in my life. Um, when I'm out in Hodzaland, I sleep like a baby. I mean, I'm just like, you know, out like a light and I, you know, I don't have the same problems, but I think, um, yeah. So <laughs> maybe I should find ways to bring more of that here. Well, I'm going to go back to your website and I'm going to help everybody who goes to reichlandlab.com, R-A-I-C-H-L-E-N-L-A-B.com. And I'm going to ask you to perhaps define this for us. This is one question I had. You indicated that we are currently examining the effects of endurance exercise on the evolution. And this is going to take us back to cognitive health, but you say the human brain with a specific focus on how and why physical activity improves cognitive health across the lifespan. But what I wanted to do, David, was help all of us ensure that we're defining the effects of endurance exercise on the evolution of the human brain. What is it that you and your team are currently considering endurance exercise? Uh, well, I mean, we, we look at endurance exercise as um, aerobic activity that occurs over uh, some long uh, time span or distance. Um, we don't have a specific, like it has to be more than five miles or 10 kilometers or whatever, um, but just it has to be aerobic activity. We're not looking at um, sprinting. We're not looking at resistance activity. We're looking at sort of movement, aerobic movement over uh, longer distances. Um, okay. That doesn't always, I mean, you know, some, some of what we work on in the lab is, is, you know, running on a treadmill or we have people on exercise bikes for older adults. Sometimes we, we, we use exercise bikes instead of treadmills. Um, in the Hadza, there's not really a lot of running, but they walk at a pretty high 
speed and there's and they get their heart rates up pretty high um at the at these brisk paces so um yeah i mean that's sort of that's that's sort of the focus well i'm going to make this super practical in and around atlanta peach tree season is here peach tree season means the ajc peach tree road race still the world's largest 10k registration goes on through the end of this month of course that's on july 4th and then we'll have 60,000 people who are if not already at least thinking about hopefully soon beginning their training, would you consider somebody who is out there training for the next few months for that 10K on July 4th by running or walking three or four times a week and getting up to that 6.2 mile distance, would that be considered kind of an endurance exercise minded lifestyle? Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I I mean, you know, uh, people who are actively engaged in an exercise training program are, you know, going above and beyond what most people in this country, as we know, what most people in this country engage in. Um, and I think, you know, uh, that having a goal like that is a great way to keep engaged in these kinds of, you know, activities for sure. Awesome. Well, and that's what I was, I was hoping you were going to say. That's the way I wanted to interpret it. It's easy, especially on a, on a podcast like this, or even with people who are kind enough to come into a our stores. And when they hear endurance, they're like, no, 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 I'm not a marathoner or Mm -hmm. I'm not a runner, or I never have any interest in doing the Boston marathon. I'm just wanting to get through peach tree and not have the paramedics at my side by the time (laughs) I get to Piedmont park. Right. But just to be clear, what you heard David say is if you are training for a 10 K, if you are doing a five K on occasion, if you are doing walking, or jogging, or running, or biking, or any other activity in the gym or in a studio on a somewhat regular basis, you are an endurance athlete by the standards of what he has studied. Okay, super, super cool. Yeah, brisk walking is one of, I mean, I'm a runner, I love running for, you know, lots of reasons, but brisk walking is also, is honestly one of my favorite active. When I take my dog out for a walk, that is like my head clearing, fantastic moment of the day. Right. And so I think you don't have to you don't have to be, uh, 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 you know, trying to get a, a age group placing at Peachtree, you know, whatever. Getting outside and moving your body is one of the most important things you can do for yourself um, that, you know, in, in, in our daily life. It's just it's just an amazing thing. That's awesome. Okay. So I I mentioned that I was going to pull in some other bodies of work that I've seen. This one, and I mentioned this to you beforehand, so I'm repeating this to you, but it was kind of cool for me. We had already planned this conversation, but I had heard of a book called The Comfort Crisis. For those of you who are not familiar with it, we'll drop that in our show notes. And I was listening to a podcast while I was out running with the author, a gentleman by the name of Michael Easter. And he referenced that as part of his own research, he had the good fortune of talking to an anthropologist at the University of Southern California. And I thought, that's got to be David Reichel. I'm sure it is. And sure enough, it was. He has already confirmed that. But his premise is that we have gotten so comfortable, again, the book called The Comfort Crisis, that it is very much impacting both our mental and our physical well-being. Your research seemingly saying the same thing predates by a decade and a half the publication date of this book. But if we think about things more recently, is there anything in the last, let's say, couple of years or maybe even since the pandemic that you're like, man, I've been doing this a long time. I'm one of the renowned experts in this field. But over the last 18 to 24 months, this is somewhat new 
in terms of a finding or somewhat new in terms of a possibility that we're really looking forward to learning more about? Um, well, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I, are you asking about our work? Cause we, we, yeah, your work. I mean, again, well, yeah, very, very much. And I, I say that against Michael Easter's work because his was less research and more his personal experience. Sure. And sure. that personal experience, I think for the reader would suggest that some of this thinking and connecting evolutionary behavior and why we might've been so much healthier previously, it's not really all that new. But there may be some new things that you've uncovered, even just in the last couple of years, that is even fascinating to you as, as someone who's been doing it a long time. Sure. Um, uh, so I'll bring up a couple of studies that I think are kind of interesting. I mean, one, the, the one that's not our work that I've already talked about a little bit is, the, is this new work looking at Alzheimer's disease in the Chimane, which I think is just like mind-blowing work that that, you know, is, is, is so important. And it's so important to get out there that, you know, that there are, there are these populations living different lifestyles than we live that don't experience some of the diseases that we deal with. And Alzheimer's is one that I'm passionate about because it's just such a devastating disease um, that costs us monetarily and relationship wise and happiness wise. And it's just, it's, it is the disease we need to figure out and, and solve. Um, from our own work, I mean, we've been doing some things that I've I've gotten passionate about. Some non-evolutionary, some evolutionary. The non-evolutionary work we just put out over the last four months or so um, has looked at the interaction between physical activity and air pollution on brain health, um, which which is highly relevant to all of us who exercise in cities, right, and in urban areas. And we found some. Um, some kind of, you know, I mean, the finding is kind of a bummer, <laughs> uh, but what we found is that um, there is an interaction that, that high physical activity in areas with air pollution uh, tends to reduce the benefits of physical activity on the brain. And so, um, you know, one of the take home messages that, that we have from this work is that we really need to do better. I mean, this is, you know, it's a cliche, but we need to do better about cleaning up the air in our urban environments because we should all be able to gain benefits from physical activity. And um, by sort of forcing you to exercise in areas where uh, the air, air pollution levels are moderately higher than they should be, um, it's kind of, it's, it's reducing those benefits. And that's, that's not fair to us because <laughs> you don't have a choice always in where you live and where you get to work out. Um, so that's, that's what I'm passionate about because I think it's, you know, it's something we all need to work on together, especially as a, in the running community and the exercise community, it's something that impacts us and we need to be, um, kind of, you know, cognizant of it and we have power, right? You know, runners, there's a lot of runners out there. We can change things if we, if we kind of get together and, and, and force change. Man, what an awesome statement and, and perfect. In fact, by talking about that particular element, let's talk about the research that you've had to do over the last couple of years alongside a, a pandemic. I'm sure it's changed. You already mentioned that field work has had to be at least set on ice to some degree. How does research and quite frankly, your body of work look different today than what it did a couple of years before there was a coronavirus? Well, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a good question. It's my work has definitely shifted to um, working on projects that don't put people at risk for COVID-19. Um, and so, you know, especially earlier in the pandemic uh, where 
you know, it, it just really was not feasible or safe. I mean, the university was closed for a lot of time uh, to bring in subjects in the lab. And especially working with older adults, you know, even when universities open up, I think we need to be cognizant of uh, COVID levels in the community and, and, and what's safe and how to safely bring in subjects. So I shifted a lot of my research to um, more of an epidemiology focus to look at um, different aspects of uh, physical activity and sedentary behavior and their effects on, on uh, or their associations with aspects of brain health. That's where like this work on pollution that I got really passionate about came out of uh, that time frame of, of, you know, thinking about, you know, what kinds of projects did I want to work on that wouldn't, you know, bring people in the lab, but that could have an impact on um, how we think about physical activity in different environments. And, and that, so that I spent quite a bit of time um, and we published a few papers on that topic, really delving into um, this air pollution problem. Wow. So last question for you, David, keeping it with the current events and is there where, I mean, I know that pandemics, even though maybe the first of our lifetime, they're not the first ever And, you know, perhaps you and your team have studied pandemics or at least had pandemics intersect with the work that you've done previously. Anything that you would say where we are today, here we are in late March 2022, and thinking about what we should take from the pandemic, whether it's evolutionarily or whether it's just from work that that you've been able to do over the last couple of years that helps us be better in the future and maybe move forward, if not just with some purpose, but where there's some legacy to the pain of the last couple of years, anything that you could tell us maybe clinically or, or perhaps from the laboratory? Well, there, I mean, I can, I can talk to a couple of things. One, um, we know from the epidemiology work that being uh, fit, cardio, having high cardiovascular fitness was associated, is generally associated with better COVID-19 outcomes. It's generally associated with better outcomes from respiratory disease. Mm. So, you know, as a motivation to maintain fitness levels, you know, I, there, there are, there may be better ones, but right now I can't think of one. Right. Um, but there's another sort of take home message I come to from the pandemic, which is that while physical activity levels dropped for a lot of people, because they were staying home, they weren't, you know, commuting, they weren't going, they weren't doing a lot of the things we do where we get, um, sort of incidental physical activity, a lot of people started purposefully exercising, taking those walks, picking up, jogging, and then running, uh, maybe going on bike rides with the family. And I, and I think just anecdotally, a lot of my friends who picked up different activities, that's one of the things, the silver linings that they found in this really tragic time was um, how much movement affected their mental health during this time. And so I hope that's something that those people and and everyone can do this, um, who picked up physical activity or who upped their activity or changed their activity and got a mental health boost from that, that they take that forward with them, that pandemic or not, that's always available, right? You know, and and I think that um, the ability to um, have that kind of agency in your life where you can find a way to move your body, however that is, right? We all have different abilities. We all have different things that we can't do, but finding ways to move your body and get your heart rate up is a behavior available to us on a daily bite basis 
that changes the way our brains work, that changes the way we feel. And it's it's our choice whether to take advantage of that. And I think the pandemic gave us, a lot of people, some time to experiment and to try that. And hopefully they maintain that because it's one, it is one of the best things that you can do for yourself in your lifetime is just get out and move your body. Man, I don't know that there's anybody who could have said any better, certainly with the background and the credentials that you have. So especially if you are part of the crew that has started to join us, whether for these conversations or in anything that we do at Big Peach, because, yep, you had a little bit more time or you started thinking a little bit more seriously about your health. There it is. Go back and listen to David's comments. Again, you are doing the right thing and we are all in this together so that together we do stick with it because it obviously it matters. It matters to individuals and it absolutely matters to communities. David, thank you very much for your time. It's always a pleasure to connect with you. I hope we can do this again. For sure. Thanks so much for having me back on. You bet. Again, he is David Reichlin. He is a friend to our community for sure, a professor, biological sciences and anthropology at the University of Southern California. We'll make sure this link is in our show notes. In the meantime, again, reichlinlab.com. Check that out. You'll see a lot more good stuff from David. In the meantime, what I'm going to do is just give you one reminder before we sign off for this evening. For those of you who do not get our newsletter, you should sign up. You can do so at bigpeachrunningco.com. I've never used this feature. I'm going to give it a shot. Let's see if this works. I'm going to put up on my screen the newsletter from this past week if I can do it properly. And the reason I say that is what I want you to be able to see, at least to some degree, is our thumbprint of the t-shirt that we released earlier this week, our Stand With Ukraine t-shirt right here in Atlanta is where the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America is. For those of you not familiar with them, you'll find the link in our newsletter. We'll include that in our show notes. 100% of the proceeds from our We Run for Peace, we stand with Ukraine tea, known as our peace tea, goes to the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America. If you've not already picked one up for you and your own loved ones, Please do so. Obviously, together we are run ATL. Like our newsletter said, we have the intent and the responsibility to make a difference beyond ourselves and even our own city limits. So help us do that if you would, please. Again, this is something we'll do every single month. The last Wednesday of every month, please join us for this Facebook Live. For those of you listening on podcast, know that we come to you every two weeks. You can find all of these links at bigpeachrunningco.com. Hey, y'all, if you enjoy our podcast, let us know. If you have topic suggestions, questions, or guests you'd like to hear on the Big Peach Ride and Run podcast, email us at podcast at bigpeachrunningco.com. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube.